The Wicked Library is brought to you by Sanitary Magazine. Sanitary Magazine showcases original horror fiction and dark verse alongside news, reviews, and interviews. Now weekly as of June 1st. SanitaryMagazine.com Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at shadowsatthedoor.com. Also brought to you by Rickert and Beagle Books. Rickert and Beagle Books is a new, used, and rare bookstore located in Dormont, PA, specializing in science fiction, fantasy, horror, and weird nonfiction. Visit them on the web at rickertandbeaglebooks.com. Warning, the Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> vibration is quiet, not even yet a rumble when the fear takes hold. The deep hum grows, coming closer. She wants to be brave, tells herself it's just a train. But before the horn sounds at the crossing a half mile away, she pulls the covers over her head, nothing exposed. Her quickened exhalations build heat and humidity in the blanketed haven to the point where she thinks she can't breathe but the train's engines are now a churning growl. It's the 10.30. So many engines pull a long line of freight cars that bump, bump on the tracks until coming to a stop at the signal behind the house. This is the train he likes best. Rissa pulls away from the frenzy of kisses and clothing removal and looks at nothing, listening You live by train tracks? Yeah, why? Lewis asks. She turns her ear toward a window that lacks curtains or blinds. It's coming, she whispers, then scoots down the bed under the sheet. Whoa, Lewis says, though stopping is not what he wants. Alrighty then. Rissa clenches the sheet in her hands and tucks it behind her head, then pulls her feet up, making herself small. Whoa, Lewis says again, the surprise laced with concern this time. What's wrong? 
He lifts the sheet, bringing fresh air, but the train hasn't passed yet. Rissa rolls, still gripping the sheet so it wraps around her. Whoa! This time frustration is apparent. If you aren't ready, just say so. Jeez. The rumble recedes. This train is only a short one. I'm sorry. Rissa struggles to unwrap her head. The sheet pulls her long blonde hair with it, so she has some cover from Lewis's almost scowl. It's stupid, she says, pushing her lips out. He softens his expression and brushes her hair back in a couple of swipes. What's wrong? She looks down to his bare chest. It's so stupid. You'll think I'm stupid. He runs his fingers along her jaw, stopping at her chin to turn her face up. It's okay. You're not stupid. Looking in his eyes for a moment, she drops her gaze to his mouth. It's from when I was a kid. The train? His hand withdraws. He is more concerned. She hesitates before nodding, keeping the pout in place like when she was a child. I thought bad things happened when the trains came. I had these nightmares. What kind of nightmares? He sounds like a detective now. Interested. Unsympathetic. The kind where you think you're awake. And that made you afraid of trains? The train man dragged bags of body parts through the house at night when the trains came. She shivers and rubs her arm. I really don't want to talk about it. The train man. Lewis says it like he's getting a feel for it. I have an overactive imagination. She gives Lewis a sly smile, but he looks through her, thinking, Did you ever tell anyone about your nightmares? My mom didn't want to hear about them. She thought they were gross. It was just me and her in a crummy house on Vista. It wasn't easy on either of us, especially her, so why would I want to bother her with my sick dreams? Her voice quivers and Lewis focuses on her. But it still affects you. It seems like a lot more than bad dreams. I always thought they were more, but I was a kid. She shrugs and sits up. I think I better go. No, I'm sorry. Please stay. He runs a finger down her arm. We don't have to do anything. Talking about this train stuff and the trains, I just need to go. She finds her shirt from the floor and slips it over her head. Another time, maybe my place. She flashes a smile, waves, and disappears down the hall. On her way home, Rissa's phone lights up, and she can see Lewis's name. He apologizes again and asks to see her. Rissa flips the phone screen side down on the passenger seat, but she can still see a halo of light around it as it lights up again. She shakes her head and twists her hands around the steering wheel as she waits for the light to change. The next day, he texts her again, asking if they can meet for dinner. Then a follow-up. She also gets an email. The day after that, she gets a message asking if she's okay, one asking if she will see him again, another saying how much he likes her, one asking if he should stop, 
and then a final one saying he will stop. The third day goes by quietly for Rissa until a flurry of text messages come in, then a phone call with a voicemail, emails, more messages, more phone calls. She doesn't look. The next morning, Rissa stands in line at the coffee shop like she does every morning before work when she feels someone too close behind her and damp, hot breath on the back of her head. Then she hears Lewis's voice. Why haven't you returned my messages? Did you see what happened? He asks in a low voice, but people still stare. Her turn in line finally comes. The barista has his hands on his hips while he looks Lewis over and says, You okay, Rissa? She nods and smiles, orders her usual, pays, and picks it up before breaking her routine and finding a seat in the store. Lewis follows like a child, having the sense to keep quiet until they sit. Lewis leans forward and says in a low voice, They found bones in a yard on Vista Street. Why do I need to know this? She asks, spinning the paper sleeve around the cup. I spent years trying to get over this fear, live a normal life. This is dredging up too much for me. He sits back in the chair, hard enough to push a huff from his lungs, his mouth open just enough not to be agape. Rissa drinks her thick black espresso, her eyes almost the same color, fixed on him. Don't you feel vindicated? I would feel better if I knew you were here because you liked me. How do you even know it's the right house? His hands come up from under the table, so he has something to focus on other than her stare. I do like you. Didn't you read anything I sent? Unconvinced, Rissa asks again. Why do you assume these bones were found where I lived? Mouth open again before he composes himself, he says... Seems a bit too coincidental, don't you think? Have the police talked to you? She shakes her head. I don't want to talk to them, either. Lewis sighs. Good. Rissa scrunches her eyebrows. Good. That it's not just me, he says, and reaches across the table to brush his fingers across hers as she holds her cup. His voice turns soft and buttery. I do like you, Rissa. She takes a drink of her espresso, leaving his hand alone on the table. I have to go to work. I'm late. Despite her words, she is casual, pushing her chair neatly under the table. Lewis moves to her side and runs a hand along the back of her arm. Work near here? No, I take the bus. But the light rail is... His voice trails off as her lips disappear in a line. Oh. How about I drive you? She adjusts the straps of a large bag on her shoulder. I guess. Can I get that for you? He indicates the bag. With a quick turn, she puts herself between the two. I'm good. Once in the car with seatbelts clicked, Lewis doesn't ask Rissa where she works and pulls into traffic in the direction the car is already facing. You'll have to turn around, Rissa says. Lewis keeps driving, his eyes on the road in front of him. As if it's his lucky day, the traffic lights are all magically green. Pedestrians don't step out in front of him, 
Other drivers don't cut him off. He is cruising along with a lovely lady who is gripping the bag in her lap. Louder this time, she says, Lewis, my work is back that way. She jerks a thumb over her shoulder, which seems to bring him out of his trance. He glances at her. Oh, sorry. Rissa lets out a breath as he clicks his left turn signal. His turn makes her bag slide across her lap and knock against the door. The clank of thick metal makes Lewis look at the oversized satchel and ask, What is it you do again? Rissa smirks. I'm a secretary. She pats her bag, resulting in the sound of metal on wood. But I volunteer at the homeless shelter sometimes, doing various maintenance. Lewis gives her an unimpressed nod and changes lanes, turning right at the next block, heading away from the city. Lewis, Rissa says, her voice even, but her quickened breath and grip on the door betray her nerves. I have a surprise, he says with playful lightness. Rissa slips a hand into an exterior pocket of her bag and pulls out her cell phone. I need to call work. Lewis's hand is over hers in an instant, squeezing it tightly around the phone. Don't, he says in that silky sweet voice. Be bad with me today. He gives her hand a tighter pulse before letting go and sliding his fingers under her bag to rest on her thigh. Her legs clamp together, and she pulls the straps of her bag tight to her chest. You can call if you want, he says, returning his grip to the steering wheel and slowing the car. Maybe you're not ready. I'll take you back to your safe, chaste office life and let the police dig up your traumatic childhood. He stops in the road. Or you can escape with me and overcome things for good. With a deep breath, Rissa puts the phone back and lets the bag drop to the floor between her feet. I'm ready. The car roars again, and Rissa is pinned in her seat as Lewis heads away from the city. A few turns and 15 minutes later, they pull into a dirt driveway, leading up to a small, square house with graying white paint. Rissa steps into the yard of ankle-high weeds. Romantic. You didn't come here for romance. Lewis slips a hand around her waist and pulls her tight against him to go to the front door, which they find unlocked. He guides her into a dim front room, only slants of sunlight filtering through closed blinds. Cigarette smoke and dust swirl through the dim planes of light. It takes a moment after the door is closed to adjust to the darkened, wood-paneled room. It is sparsely furnished with a boxy, dark green sofa a gold-striped velour chair, and a questionably colored chair next to the doorway to the kitchen, occupied by the source of the haze. The man's raspy voice, enveloped in smoke, comes from thin, wrinkled lips. It's been a long time. An involuntary cough escapes from Rissa. Can you believe the luck? Lewis says, wrapping his arm back around her waist and jostling her. Running into her on some dating site. The old man stubs his cigarette in a vintage standalone ashtray. You did good, son. Lewis wears a grin so wide it nearly breaks his face in two. Looking from the man, then to Lewis, Rissa says, I don't think good, Lewis says and puts a hand on her shoulder. Don't think. He pushes her into the chair where she lands with a muffled clatter from her bag. 
It shifts in such a way that her phone thunks to the floor. Lewis swipes it like a cat, sending it under the sofa before Rissa can retrieve it. That made it easy, he says. The old man lights another cigarette. Wisps of smoke that match the few remaining bits of hair on his head trail up from his mouth as he speaks. You could have made a lot of trouble for me, Rissa. But my good boy, Lewis here, found you. What are you talking about? Rissa asks. Less fearful than the situation demands. Father and son laugh, a dichotomy of hearty and weak mirth. Your nightmares were real, Lewis says, wiggling fingers at her. Rissa studies the withered old man and says, You. I'm your train man, he says, spreading his arms out to present himself. And I appreciate you keeping my secrets for me all these years. And the nickname. He winks, and she reacts as if slapped, looking at the flattened shag carpet at her feet. I can't believe you didn't go straight to the cops when they found all those bones in the yard, Lewis says, amused. Rissa lifts her gaze to him. I told you, I'm looking to get over my past. I'm not talking to anyone, so you should just let me be. A dry clucking of the train man's tongue draws both of their attention. I always did like you, but those bones... Well, they're causing some problems. I'll bet. Rissa leans back in the chair and puts her hands to her chin, clutching the straps of her bag. Thing is, he says, those bones aren't from me. Lewis's mouth drops open, but Rissa almost sneers. Looks like you weren't the only one using trains for cover, she says, and receives a backhand from Lewis. Shut up, he yells, then turns back to his father. If those weren't from you, what do you need her for? I'd rather guarantee I don't spend my last few months in jail. And those bones could do that. She knows what I did. He nods at Rissa, who is rubbing her face and glaring at the two men. Doesn't matter that I was smart enough and dropped my body parts in the tank cars full of acid. Someone else wasn't, and she's the only one who can put it on me. He jabs his cigarette at her. Now that you're all grown up, people will believe you. And I won't be able to convince your mommy that you're just a kid who has bad dreams. Rissa lets out a short bark of a laugh. You two have it all wrong. She reaches into her bag and stands, but Lewis reacts before she's upright and pushes her back in her seat, holding her down by both shoulders. Desperate words from a desperate woman, he says, his face inches from hers. How about I give you what you came here for before I give you to dad to finish you off? I'll get what I came for. Rissa smiles and cocks her head. It wasn't luck that brought us together. It was me. Before Lewis can back away, Rissa grabs him by the back of the neck. A knife pierces the side of her bag and slides between Lewis's ribs into his heart. She slips out from under him 
removing the knife from both him and the bag to let him fall face first into the chair. Another sheath knife, a bone saw, and handles of other tools spill out of her satchel as it hits the floor. Without a moment of grief, the train man lurches out of his chair toward the kitchen, but Rissa hurls the knife at his back, catching him in the right shoulder blade. He stumbles forward, splaying onto the counter and reaching wildly with his left hand toward the knife handle. His vain attempts end when Rissa grips the handle. She wiggles it back and forth to pull it from the bone. He screams and grabs at the pencil cup at the end of the counter, but only succeeds in sending them clattering to the floor before Rissa flips him like a pancake. Blood smears across the gold-flecked laminate counter as he tries to wriggle free. But he is old and weak now, not the strong, dark man who lugged cut-up bodies through the house when Rissa was a child. She backs away and lets him crumple to the floor, where he cradles his right arm and cries. You didn't have to kill my boy, he says. I'll let you live. You were going to kill me, or he was. She waves the knife toward Lewis's body, then crouches in front of him, putting the tip of her knife under his chin and whispers, You should have killed me then. Instead, you ruined me and made me kill all those people. His milky eyes widen. The bones were from you. She reaches toward his head with her free hand, and he cowers. With a light touch, she smooths the gray strands on his head. I've been looking for you, she says in a soothing voice, almost sweet, to make things right for me again. Since I couldn't find you, all those people died. A scoff escapes the train man. Then I found you had a son, so I found him. The mention of Lewis makes the man's lips tremor and his hazy eyes fill again. Killing me won't fix you, he says, raspier than before. That must be why I liked you so much. His mouth stretches across his face in an attempt at a smile. She grabs the front of his shirt, pulling him close to her tightened face, and exhales forcefully through clamped teeth, sending a spray of spit on him, then shakes him. No, she yells and slams him back to the floor. You made me this way. A few rasps come from the man. Laughter. Then his croaking words come out. You were that way all along. Rissa straddles him on her knees, her face flush, her body shaking. It was you, she wails as she brings the knife over her head so she can come down with all her force and rage. The first thrust driving deep into the front of his left shoulder. You ruined me. Again, the knife dives into his body, piercing his right lung. You stab. You stab. You stab. Over and over. Blood sprays across the cabinets each time she pulls it out of his chest. Blood spills from each wound and a gush with every heartbeat until she stabs that too. Blood pools in the depression created from repeated strikes to his chest until her years of blame are spent. The ritual begins with sawing the bodies into manageable pieces, putting them into black garbage bags like she found in her closet when she was nine, and cleaning her tools. 
Then she deviates, loading the bags into Lewis's car instead of storing them in her closet until she can bury them when the train goes by at night. The trains don't bother her now, haven't for years, but she sure put on a good show for Lewis. She showers, puts on the train man's clothes, and gets his work keys from his old job in the train yard. She lights one of his cigarettes, drops it into the chair where he sat, and waits until the flames spring from the grimy fabric before closing the door and walking to the car. By this time, it is dark, and she hears the low vibration. It would be so convenient to dispose of the train man in his own backyard. But she wants her trail of bones to lead to him, the way it was meant to when she called the police station with her anonymous tip. So she drives away as the windows of the house glow warm with flame. One last trip to her own house should do the trick. She's a little further down the line from the house on Vista, and the train rumbles by, slowing with its high-pitched brake squealing through the night, sparks flying from the metal until the train cars stop clanging together. A line of black tank cars rests before her. She opens the trunk and pulls out a bag. You were right, she says to it. Killing you didn't fix me, but I did learn something. She walks to the tank car, the train man's keys jingling with each step. When I find somewhere to settle down again, no one will be finding the bones. Today's episode featured a story by Cynthia Lohman, Train Man. If you'd like more information on Cynthia and our work, please visit CynthiaLohman.com and follow her on Twitter at Cynthia Lohman. Artwork for today's show was created by John Towers. You can see more of John's work at StigmataStudios.com and follow him on Twitter at Johnny Axe. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Big thanks to Neil Gaiman and Nelson W. Piles for two of the three Great Little Tales last week, and also to the artists, Trisha Martin, Jeanette Andromeda, Stephen Matico, and Matt Yvonne Stark for the kick-ass art. And also to the composers, Dark Mood, Sebastian Smith, and John Nespazinski. If you haven't checked out the story and the art and the music, go to thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 611 to do that. As a reminder... That episode will only contain Neil Gaiman's story until October 18th. After that, it will be replaced by a version with Nelson and my stories. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, shadowsatthedoor.com, rickertandbeaglebooks.com, and sanitariummagazine.com. Also, a thank you to horrormade.com, which is run by one of our resident artists, Jeanette Andromeda. Be sure to stop by and take a look at her other work, including some really great articles and links to other artwork and more. Please share the terror. Share the show. Help us grow. Tell a friend or that weird guy on the bus about us. The best support you can give us is to rate us in iTunes. Ratings are free and mean a lot to us because they help us get more ears on the work of the authors, musicians, and of course, more eyes on the work of our artists. 
sign up for our Wicked newsletter, won't you? The next issue will be out on Monday as of the recording of this episode. That is just a few days away. That is August the 31st. The next issue will be Jesse Saxon with a fantastic little bonus story. You get news, you get more artwork, you get all kinds of cool stuff. And we're going to be giving away a great Wicked prize. So sign up at thewickedlibrary.com. And now, Cynthia Lohman. So today, my guest is Cynthia Lohman, and we had a great story. Train man. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. You know, you're the first guest in-studio writer for the Wicked Library. Oh. Normally, I do this by Skype or phone. I bet you wish we were doing it that way. They're all missing out. They're missing out on something awful. No. So I found that interesting that you have a female serial killer who is very aggressive in the way she kills, which is unusual for female serial killers. Not unheard of, but unusual. Right. They're often black widows. Yeah, they like to use poison or other discreet methods. Right. Whereas, well, you know, I don't think the story ever really gets into how she normally kills. Just that she chops them up and puts them in black plastic bags. Right. I, I don't know how she normally kills. I never really thought about it. We do see her kill at the end, and right. she uses a knife. Yeah. She obviously carries around sharp instruments with her everywhere she goes. <laughs> Not necessarily everywhere, just when she has plants. Ah, very good. So, what terrifies you most about real-world monsters? Because your story doesn't have a werewolf, Frankenstein, a ghost, a vampire. You have a, a, a serial killer. No, it's very real. And to me... Those are the most terrifying stories of all. Yes. The fantasy stories or the paranormal that if you're a skeptic like I am, those really don't do a whole lot for you. So the things for me that are scariest are real things. Mm -hmm. Can you suspend disbelief? I mean, you can. You can be terrified by a Babadook. I, well... To me, that was a very real story. It was because that was something that she created. So it was her own fear manifest. She poured all her energy into it and created kind of a tulpa. Right. So that seemed very real as opposed to a lot of things. I They just don't scare me very much. Yeah. It's hard to scare me. A lot of the paranormal stories, even though I tend to write those stories too i'm always looking to scare myself well and they're fun to sometimes write sometimes i don't do it very well <laughs> so do you have a horror movie or a story that kind of made you decide that it was a genre that you were interested in something that was kind of your gateway into horror i don't think i have anything i could put my finger on i've always been interested in horror stories from when I was a kid in the late night, terrible horror movies, I've watched all of those. I've watched the good ones and um, even been involved in the making of a film. So That's right. <laughs> we can talk about your film. Well, it's not my film, but well, you were involved I participated. In it. Right. <laughs> you were script supervisor. Right. And a lot of that has to do with continuity, which is important when you're writing a story as well. Did you find that your writing experience helped? Somewhat. I think that. I was thinking, trying to get into the writer's head and what story he wanted to tell. So that did help at some points. 
to make sure that the story was told the way that he wanted to tell it since he was also the director. So he got to do that. <laughs> right. And that's the other side. Yes. Which is coming out on September 1st on video on demand. That's awesome. Everybody's very excited, right? Oh yeah. That's <laughs> very been cool. a long haul. Divert for a second. What's the movie about? It is a zombie movie, but it is, I would say that it's very much a, drama mm-hmm. as well as a horror movie it's very character driven yes which takes us back to night of the living dead which was very character driven right. so i like that that it's kind of an homage back to that style of writing which is yes. what appeals i think to obviously a lot of the listeners because we're here to tell a story and what right. is a story but the characters it's more thinking and when you listen to things i think that lets your imagination go So you're able to create more things in your head. And that makes it a whole lot scarier a lot of the time, depending on how you think. (laughs) Yeah, it makes you participatory. I mean, what you come up with on your own is is more real to you, I think. Yeah. So what do you most often read? I mean, obviously, I know you're interested in in horror fiction, but are are there any other genres that you find yourself gravitating toward? I read just about everything except romance. What, what don't you like about romance? I I do not like the mushy love stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's get to the fighting and the beating yeah, people up, right? Yeah. But, you know, everything. I read literary fiction and fantasy and just, I've even, even children's and young adult, I, the whole spectrum. Yeah. I mean, I think it all helps the writing. I mean, to keep yourself to one genre, I think right. limits your writing. And I think we were talking about that a little bit earlier tonight, that essentially it's dipping into the well and filling your bucket. And the more right. that you reach out to, the more diverse and interesting your writing can be, I think. There's a lot to learn from all different kinds of writers and even romance writers, but I just can't get through it. So <laughs> <laughs> That's just me. So what's a romantic evening for you? Oh, no. <laughs> good horror movie yeah with popcorn i love popcorn well there you go (laughs) there's nothing more romantic than popcorn that's right and i will eat popcorn through anything (laughs) it doesn't matter what's on the screen stabby stabby stuff in my face (laughs) what is the most challenging part of writing for you it changes it depends on the story sometimes it's Taking the concept and making it into a fully fleshed out story. And other times it's taking the story and being able to write the actual scenes. Mm-hmm. It just depends. I've had all kinds of troubles depending <laughs> on what I'm writing. <laughs> it changes on me. It's not fair. <laughs> well, I guess that means that essentially you're conquering these things as they come along that, right? Well, I'd like to think that I have yet to prove it. <laughs> So what is one thing that you would change about your process? Um, I'm working on having time every day that really focus time every day. Mm-hmm. It's been difficult. So to really just rope off that time in your life and instead I do it in chunks like I'll pick a day and do a huge chunk on a day and I would like to have like a daily work schedule type mm-hmm. of thing. And I think that's most of the successful writers you hear, that's what they do. They work every day and they don't let other things get in the way. Yeah. I mean, even if it's a short period of time, mm-hmm. there's always set time every day. Yes. And I have yet to do that. 
I I have yet to be able to not answer the phone when my son calls and <laughs> or when my mom calls, yeah. or, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, is part I of that setting an actual schedule saying between two and four? I think it is. Nobody calls me. Well, and That's even if they call time. me, I don't answer the phone. Right, because when you <laughs> when you had a normal nine to five job, people knew that they right. couldn't call you between yeah. certain hours, yeah. right? Unless it was an emergency. Mm-hmm. Well, you finished your first novel recently. What did you learn along the way? Because that's that's a heck of a project to write a novel from start uh, to finish. Yeah, I'm hoping that it will not take so long the next time, and uh, not years. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet again, that's another thing: sit down and do it. Don't make excuses. Don't let other things get in the way. You just do it. And I got really good at that to plow through it and finish it, particularly the last year. I really focused and worked on it all the time. You sure did. So it's finished, but... Now you have to go through that editing process. I think I have to rewrite it. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. What was a long time in in the process from start to finish? Yes. I've read through the whole thing once and made notes. I did a little bit of editing, but I didn't want to edit and then just cut the stuff later. Why spend all that time doing it if you're just going to cut it? And... There's a lot of work to be done. You can see how I learned along the way Mm -hmm. if anyone else would be allowed to read it, (laughs) which they won't. You can see how I progressed and see how things got better. And so there there is a lot of work to be done. And that's an interesting thing about a long work like that, because really, when you start it and when you finish it, you're not the same person anymore. You're not the same writer. Right. And I think that that's why I would want to if and hopefully when I do another one, it will be a shorter compressed time period. Mm-hmm. You really didn't have a process when you went into this yes. and you came out of it with a process. I went in thinking, oh, I can just write this as it comes. And then I realized that that wasn't a very good plan. So <laughs> <laughs> I wandered down a lot of dead ends. Well, we all do. <laughs> so you belong to several writing groups and I'm hmm. curious what is the main thing or main things that you get from them? Some of it is education, learning a lot of those things along the way, mm-hmm. um, workshops and stuff like that. Pen Writers has a lot of workshops and then they have a really big conference that you can go to. So that's nice. You learn a lot from that, make connections. And then I have two smaller groups and... That's getting people to read it and critique it and give you input. And a lot of it's motivation. Having something for people to read, of course. I haven't been so good at that. But <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, having the, the thing, the monkey on your back basically saying, I better have something right. to read within the next week or two weeks or whatever it is. Right. Why am I going to this writer's group if I'm not going to write? But the other thing that I've had is I've learned a lot just from critiquing, too. Mm-hmm. You learn tons by critiquing other people's work. Because to do it properly, you learn these things and then you apply it toward their writing. So it helps you to write, too. Yeah, I think you it helps you recognize the same errors in your own writing. Yes. Because it's obviously a lot more apparent when you're not hip deep in it like you are with your own writing. Right. You become 
almost kind of snow blind when you're writing your own stuff and you don't yeah. realize the mistakes that you're making. But when you look at somebody else's, you're like, oh, I do that all the time too. Yeah, it's so much easier to look at somebody else's and fix their problems than it is to fix your own. <laughs> Isn't that life? I mean, that's life. <laughs> it, it really is. <laughs> writing is life. <laughs> well, if you're writing, if you're doing it correctly, it is, right? I guess. <laughs> so one of the things we started to talk about this, but people say to write what scares you. And with that being such a personal thing, I'm wondering what your opinion is on how you do that and still make your story appeal to a wide audience. I think that we share fears just as people. We all share a lot of the same fears. You might have your little quirky fears that everyone thinks is weird, but there are a lot of very common fears that. I'm afraid of yellow cars. <laughs> well, it's a good thing I got a red one. <laughs> <laughs> or not. <laughs> what other projects do you have coming up? Is there anything fun that you're working on? Am I allowed to talk about other projects? Sure. <laughs> you're allowed to talk about whatever you want. I thought I wasn't supposed to talk about that. Oh, oh, that. Yeah, yeah you can talk about that. Really? Yeah, if you want to. All right. Well, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Besides- Nobody knows what we're talking about. I know. <laughs> it's a secret. Well, I don't want to spill any secrets. Well, you are going to be working on this little project called The Lift, and uh, the creator of The Wicked Library, Nelson W. Piles, also wrote a story for it. So I guess we can talk about it here briefly. Okay. From what I understand, you're going to be writing a pretty important episode. Oh, yes. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Well, you know, that's an interesting thing. What's, is it different to write in somebody else's universe and somebody else's sandbox? It is different. Um, I'm very conscientious about other people's characters and other people's worlds, and I don't want to step on things. Mm -hmm. I want to make it very authentic for the creator and, and not go off on some weird tangent that they hate me for <laughs> you have the you have the trust of the uh the creator of that yeah, so well we'll see how that pans out later <laughs> what are some of the things that you feel that you have to be cognizant of when you're working on somebody else's characters well you just want to keep the character authentic to who the creator made them to be we never really know each other just even as people, not created characters, you don't, I couldn't write another person and be truly authentic to that person. You never really know someone completely. So you just want to stay true to what the creator's vision of that character is. And, and it can be difficult. Again, we go back to the mind reading. (laughs) (laughs) Not so good at that. So I ask a lot of questions. Well, that's always a good thing. Well, thanks for sitting down and talking. You're welcome. (laughs) Do you want to give out links to your other work and where people can find Uh, your stuff and interact with you? Well, once in a while, I actually have a blog. Um, Things have been a little chaotic for me, so I don't think I've updated that in over a month. (laughs) That's it. Um, Cynthia Loman. It's L-O-W-M-A-N dot com. I'm on Twitter. Facebook is the same. At Cynthia Loman. Yeah, I tried to keep it. Fairly consistent, even though that's not my name. 
used to be my name. It used to be. <laughs> so why is it not your name? Because my name is Nespozenski. <laughs> and how do you spell that? <laughs> no, I'm not spelling that. <laughs> I'll fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for sharing Train Man with us. And uh, if folks like want to. Oh, well, I'm it, people, stepping on your line. Well, you know. People, <laughs> <laughs> I learned that from movie making. Step on somebody else's line? Line stepping. Fantastic. <laughs> well, you didn't step on my line. I was just going to say, uh, I don't know what I was going to say. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to have fun editing this. How I roll. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's all right. This is the last like in-house interview you're ever going to do. You're like with you. Damn it. Other people are welcome. People that know how to control themselves and behave. Oh my God. Ruin everything I touch. Yeah. Well, that's why we call it horror. (laughs) All work read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was written, composed, and performed by Anthony Rousick of Novus. All incidental music was written and performed by Kevin McLeod or Purple Planet Music and used with their permission. See the show notes for links and titles. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production www.ninthstory.com Produced by Daniel Foytek Executive Producer Nelson W. Piles Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 612 Until next time This has been Daniel Foytek Go ahead Leave the lights on It makes it easier for the killer to find you